me where, tell me where to go. Tell me where, tell me where to go. Tell me where, tell me where to go. Where I fly. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tell Me Where to Go, the travel program that tries to take you away from it all. I'm Steve Collins and welcome back. It's lovely to have you listening today. Now, with COVID it is very difficult to travel, but I'm sure that will be coming to an end in the foreseeable future. However, just to keep you updated with some news about travel, First of all, Qantas this week began its first flights in over 10 years to India. The first flight from Sydney to Delhi took off earlier this week. It's a 15-hour flight from Sydney. There'll be three return flights from Sydney to Delhi. And then starting on the 22nd of December, there'll be four weekly flights from Melbourne to Delhi. And I tell you what, it must be a good move. You wouldn't have thought that India would be a place where a lot of people would want to go at the moment because of COVID. But these flights have sold out quicker than any other international flights that Qantas has introduced recently. So there you go. There's a lot of people from India who probably want to go home and visit family at this time of year. So that's totally understandable. Qantas CEO Alan Joyce said he was very buoyant when he was talking about those flights, but he also said that Qantas remained very confident there would be a significant increase in demand from Australians wanting to travel domestically in the new year. Now that's important because as we get to 90% vaccination rates all over Australia, it will start opening up and we will be able to travel a little bit freer. We hope. And I say that advisedly because South Australia opened up and immediately they got some cases of COVID. So it's a very, very tricky situation. I think the West Australian government, they're obviously very, very cautious about what they do and quite rightly because you don't really want COVID in the state. A lot of people seem to think it's not all that serious. Well, I can assure you it is serious for various people, particularly if you have another underlying medical condition and the state is responsible for looking after the welfare of its citizens. It's why we have things like road rules. It's why we have jails for criminals. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that the government does with the sole aim of protecting citizens. You may be an anti-vaxxer and may not trust in the new vaccines. Well, that's your problem, to be quite frank with you. I mean, surely taking a vaccine makes common sense. I've been fully vaccinated, even had my booster shot. I had absolutely no reaction to any of those shots. And I can't see why, when we're so used to taking all sorts of legal drugs these days, why anyone would doubt the efficiency of a vaccine. But anyway, that's my little political statement of the day. Let's get on to something else. Fremantle. Yes, Fremantle has won some tourism awards at this year's WA Tourism Awards, which were held on Saturday the 13th of November. And Fremantle won the Excellence in Local Government Award for Tourism for the city's This is Fremantle campaign. 
took out second place for the tourism marketing and campaigns category. There are also a number of service providers, tourism providers in Frio and other Frio winners on the night included the Fremantle Prison, which got a Hall of Fame award. It won the Cultural Tourism Award. Also, Fremantle's ferry service, Sealink WA, took home a silver in the major tour and transport operators category. Fremantle Prison also won silver and the WA Maritime Museum won bronze in the major tourist attractions category. Well, I've been to both of those places and I tell you, the WA Maritime Museum in particular is fascinating. You could spend hours there. The prison, of course, is also equally interesting when you look at the history of the place and when you also go into some of those cells and see that the conditions that the prisoners lived in, I can tell you what, it's a bit eye-opening, but Fremantle, you know, it is a bubbling entertainment area as well. You can always go down there, get a good meal. I'll never forget that it is the Australian home of the pub brewery when Sail and Anchor opened up somewhere before 1987 when we had the America's Cup here. It's just a very, very interesting place to go. Good vibe. Now you've got places like Little Creatures, etc. There's so much to do down there and they are improving Fremantle all the time. If you want to go down by public transport, they've even got the free So there we go. It's a great place to go and visit. And congratulations to Fremantle and all of those who were based in Fremantle that won awards. Now, coming up on today's show, our first interview is with Geoffrey Thomas, who's the editor-in-chief of AirlineRatings.com. Now, Geoffrey is a real expert, a true expert on the missing Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, or MH370 as it is better known. As you know, it was in 2014, March the 8th precisely, that it just simply disappeared. It was flying from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, turned around just before it reached Vietnam, and did some really tricky and unusual manoeuvres before flying out into the South Indian Ocean. And nobody really knows what happens, but new evidence that Jeffrey has suggests that they may have pinpointed the exact location of MH370. He's fascinating. He'll be coming up next on the show. Now, Qatar is in the Arabian Gulf. A lot of people have probably been to Qatar if you've gone on Qatar Airways to Doha, to Europe or America or Africa or whatever. It is one of the world's greatest airline hubs. People sort of go to the airport there. They don't leave the airport. But I tell you what, if you are a kite surfer, then you should leave the airport and go out and do a bit of kite surfing because it turns out that Qatar is a brilliant kite surfing destination. I'll be talking to British expat Sarah Lord, who is a kite surfing instructor, who'll tell us all about the best spots to go kite surfing in Qatar, and she will reveal other stuff that will blow your mind. Finally, we'll go down to the Ferguson Valley, which is just sort of inland from Bunbury. Absolutely beautiful area. There's some tremendous wineries down there. There's some good accommodation. There's some lovely drives. But the thing that really impresses me about the Ferguson Valley 
is Gnomesville. And I've got a little documentary on Gnomesville that I will play later in the show. So sit back, relax, listen to Tell Me Where to Go and just dream about travelling again. I'll be back shortly. On Tell Me Where to Go, it is my joy to introduce Geoffrey Thomas, who is the editor-in-chief of AirlineRatings.com, which is one of the best aviation websites in the world. Jeff, welcome to Tell Me Where to Go. Pleasure. Pleasure, Steve. How are you? Well, I'm very, very well, thank you very much. Good. Good. Uh, the other day, you released details, you released video of the supposed location of the remains of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 or MH370 as it is more commonly known. A lot of work has gone into this, particularly by a British aerospace engineer, Richard Godfrey. Can you tell me basically about Richard and also how he believes he located where MH370 lies? Yes, look, it's a fascinating story. So Richard Godfrey and a number of other very eminent scientists and aerospace engineers, uh, satellite engineers around the world, formed a group called the Independent Group not long after MH370 disappeared in 2014. And they collectively used their various skill sets to try and work out where this aeroplane had gone. Initially, that work focused on the Inmarsat satellite pings. Now, for the the listeners who don't quite know what that means, most aeroplanes today upload data through a satellite transmitter on the aeroplane up to a satellite down to a ground station, and that's all sorts of data, typically engine data. So, for instance, an airline like Qantas, monitors all its engines in real time. So every second, data is pouring up to a satellite down to their headquarters in Sydney and they monitor the engines for things like temperature spikes in the engine, so that would indicate a problem. So this sort of data is uploading. What happened on MH370 is that the piece of kit called ACARS, its Aircraft Communication Reporting System, was switched off by supposedly the captain as soon as the plane changed course back towards Malaysia. It was heading towards Beijing, wasn't Beijing, it? That was, that's it was right. Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Yep. When the plane went from Malaysian airspace control to Vietnamese airspace control, in that little tiny window between the two, the plane turned back. Right. So this data failed to be uploaded because the system had been switched off. However, as part of the kit, every hour, if Inmarsat satellite has not heard from the plane, it pings the plane and says, are you there? It's a little bit like your internet provider pinging your line, you know, to make sure it works. It's actually live. And the plane pings back, yes, I'm here, because that's something the pilot could not turn off. So every hour we have these pings from MH370 indicating where it is. What we don't have is the flight path in between those one-hour sectors. The plane gets to what's called the sixth arc, so the sixth ping, which is basically northwest of Perth, Western Australia, about yeah. uh, 2,000 k's. That was at 8 o'clock. Yeah, 8, 8 p.m., are we? 8 a.m. in the morning. 8 a.m., okay, yeah. Yeah, at 19 minutes past the hour, the plane pings the satellite. 
what the relevance of that is, is that the engines had failed, ran out of fuel, and the ram air turbine deployed, just like a little fan, if you like, yep. deploys into the slipstream, spins around, powers the plane back up, and then the first thing that happens is, is the satellite transmitter pings the Inmarsat satellite and says, I'm, I'm here again, you know. Yep. So using that data, all sorts of people have been tracking this aeroplane, including Richard Godfrey. The part we really didn't have is the part between 8.19 and when it hit the water. What happened? So Richard has also done reverse drift modelling, which is where all this debris ended up. And he's done drift modelling, which brings him brings him his analysis to a spot almost identical to where the University of Western Australia said the plane is, and they use drift modelling as well. So what Richard has discovered, although the database has been around for a while, it's a fascinating technology called weak signal propagation, which is a digital radio communication protocol to do with ham radio operators. Now, ham radio operators are sending signals around the world, thousands and thousands and thousands of them on the air all over the place. Put this very, very simply, is when a plane flies through that yes. radio wave, it disturbs it. Yeah. Now, all of these radio waves have been in a database since 2008. So he has developed some software tools to help him interpret the aberration, and there's two or three software tools, and... The beauty of this is that these disturbances are every two minutes. So he has been able to track this plane all the way to this particular location, which is 1,933 kilometres, right. basically due west of Perth. Now, let's just hold this for a second. So people would might ask, okay, well, you know, maybe that's good luck. Well, nine months ago, Richard yeah. came to us at Airline Ratings and the Western Australian newspaper and said, I would like you to adjudicate some blind tests. I'm being given some flight paths by Qantas, so Qantas 747 captain, the Royal New Zealand Air Force, and Australia's Maritime Search and Rescue yep. Authority for flights that were never tracked through the usual systems. All he was given was the time and date of the takeoff and the direction. Right. That's all, nothing else. Can I just clarify that um, with the data that he was given, although he was only given that much, the authorities that gave it to him actually knew where the plane he was tracking ended up. Yes. Yep. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I, right. I knew. I was given the detail. I was the adjudicator. And so Richard then tracked these four flights right to it, their destination with unwavering accuracy. Now, he wanted to go on and do two or three more of these. And uh, the Qantas captain that I'm working with and I said, no, let's get on with MH370. We are yep. absolutely satisfied yep. this technology is right. So away he went with MH370. The interesting part about this location, as I said, it was very, very close to where Professor Charati Padarachi from the University of Western Australia, one of the world's leading oceanographers, he said this is where the plane crashed. And on his drift modelling, which he gave to yes. Blaine Gibson, the wreck hunter, he then, Blaine Gibson went all around the Indian Ocean and found all this wreckage. He did, Reunion Island and places like that. All that sort of stuff. So that sort of supports the fact that he's in the right spot. Also, when the ATSB's contractor, Fugro, surveyed this particular area back in 2015-16, they did find some anomalies there. Now, they were checked. In fact, they were checked by a Chinese search vessel. Yep. 
the report came back, there's nothing there. When you look at the topography of the seabed, yeah. it's in between two dormant volcanoes. Yeah. And also, there's canyons and ravines there that are another 1,000 metres deep. Now, the depth is 4,000, and these ravines go down another 1,000 metres. Yeah. It could well be that the remainder of this aeroplane at the bottom of some ravine, which is almost impossible to detect. Yes. Are there any theories about what actually happened? For instance, as the plane was being pinged every hour, you would have known what speed it was flying at. They would yep. have known how far it could fly due to how much fuel it took with it. But what surprises me is that nobody seemed to realise until far too late that this flight, which had 227 passengers on board and I think 12 crew from memory, just disappeared. At the time it disappeared, it was still flying, wasn't it? Well, the reality is people were asleep at the wheel. Right. We've got an over-the-horizon radar system called JORN, which is based in WA, in the Northern Territory, and that's supposed to detect this stuff. But it was turned off. The Indonesian radar was turned off, or some of it was turned off. There's all sorts of things that were, I think the best way to describe it is people were asleep at the wheel. That's all it was. But one of the interesting things about this flight path that's really, really fascinating is between these Inmarsat locator beacon recordings, which basically draw a straight line, the flight path was actually quite a zigzag. And at one stage, he was tracking straight towards Geraldton. Really? Yes, the thought was that he was going to try and make, uh, to to, to fly to Geraldton and land the plane. I think Captain Sahari, Mm. who 99.9% certain he was responsible for this, he was obviously in a confused state of mind because then he changed course, and this is really interesting. He changed course, according to Richard Godfrey, yeah. to a point southwest of Western Australia, which is identical to the waypoint on his flight simulator car right. computer. Because they got all that information afterwards, didn't they? They, they went through his flight simulator and they found that he had actually been practising flying in this area. Basically flying yeah. this particular course, absolutely. At one stage, he had MH370 on this exact track, yeah. exact track. He then changed to go due south instead. And according to Richard Godfrey's tracking, he was descending to make a water landing when he ran out of fuel. And that's when he dove the aeroplane into the sea. It went from 4,000 feet a minute descent rate to 15,000 feet a minute descent so rate. So he basically turned it straight down and it went down at yep. 90 degrees basically into the drink, did it? Basically, yeah. yeah. The aeroplane shattered in, into yeah. thousands of pieces, millions of pieces. I mean, a small, tiny bit. One of the most yeah. interesting pieces, it's commonly called Roy, yeah. and it's a little bit of the emblem of Rolls-Royce. Right. R-O-Y. You've got the R-O-Y yeah. and missing the C-E. It's a little emblem off the engine cowling. It was found in Cape Town. Gosh covered in barnacles, and it's commonly called in the industry, it's called ROY. Well, that's all you could see was R-O-Y, but it's off It's, it's off the engine cowling. And that's proof that the, the aircraft would have disintegrated rather than land or even crashed, and, and there would be big pieces around. And the other thing that really confirms that, Steve, is that there's lots of debris from inside the cabin, cabin floor, yep. you know the seat back videos, yes. the holder that holds the seat, there's all that sort of stuff. Right. 
has been found all around the Indian Ocean, yeah. uh, over in Africa and, on, yeah. and all the various islands, Madagascar and Reunion Island, etc., etc. There is absolutely no doubt. And look, one of the real tragedies of this thing is every time someone comes up with a theory, the relatives left behind yeah. are tortured by all the wild speculations. Yes. And listeners may not realise this, but there's been 130 books written about really? MH370. Wow. 130. How many of them are credible? I think the most honest book I saw was A Psychic's Guide to MH370, and I thought that's about the most honest <laughs> title of the whole lot. It's just piffle, it's nonsense, it's rubbish. One of the most recent ones was by a French author, a lady, yeah. and she said it was shot down by a laser beam in the South China Sea. Well, that'd be right, yeah. Well, <laughs> but there is not one skerrick of evidence anywhere that this plane crashed anywhere but... 2,000 k's west of Perth. Not a shred anywhere. What about the other assumption? The assumption is that everybody except for the person who piloted the plane were dead fairly early into the police. Do you subscribe to that as well? Look, I do. The commonly held theory is that the captain turned off the oxygen yep. and mercifully they just went to sleep yes. and would have known absolutely nothing. There was a famous flight, I think, from WA to Cairns or somewhere. It was mining right. executives was and flight. exactly the same uh, thing happened, didn't it? Yes. It, now I was up in the middle of the night rewriting the paper yes. for that story. That was a, I was sort of living that in real time. Yes. That was a ghastly thing. Yes, there was about seven or eight people on board. Yes. There was a depressurization event, very slow, and everybody just felt a bit drowsy and then just fell asleep. And that was all there was to it. And no, no pain, no nothing. Did, did they not have Air Force aircraft up there following? They could see what was happening. Yes, they, they did. They had an there was nothing they, had, they could they, do? There was, they scrambled an F-18 yep. out of Tyndall in the Northern Territory, flew alongside it, and they said yes. They reported that they could see people asleep, uh, leaning up against the windows, yep. asleep, and the pilot was asleep, slumped asleep over the controls. The plane was on autopilot, and there was absolutely nothing they no. could do. Not a thing. No. Not a thing. But that's not the first time that's happened. It's happened a, it's happened a few times. Yeah. Very sad. Very sad. Given where the presumed or a location probable. is or possible or probable location is, it's still going to be very, very difficult to discover because if it has smashed into smithereens, basically, and it's at a depth of at least 4,000 metres, perhaps even deeper, do we really have the technology to find that? And if it's been there, what, nearly nine years now, there'll be a lot of sea creatures there and, and things grow over the little pieces and stuff like that. So it would be very, very difficult to find, I should imagine. It's interesting. Don't forget, there's very little oxygen down there. Yeah. It's freezing cold. Yeah. It's almost like everything is in a deep freezer. So that preserves things, doesn't it? For instance, Victor Vikescu, I think his name is pronounced, I'm probably the pronunciation right, he's a deep sea dive expert and he's currently at the Solomon Islands in the Cristobal yep. Trench with a submersible. He's down to 8,000 wow. metres. So, yes, we do have the technology. Now, what's going to happen now, I would suggest, is the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau will pull out the scanning data we have yep. for this area and have another real intense look at this particular spot and see what they might have missed. There's two companies that are extremely interested in coming back to have a look at it. Now, the other thing too, which is interesting, Richard Godfrey said that this is the prime location, but there are two others which are in a line 
towards Perth, where if the plane at the last minute was pulled out of the dive, at the last yeah. minute pulled out of the dive, it could be a little bit further to the east. Right. And that would take it into an area that has not been searched. Right. So the first thing is to examine the scanning data we already have, see what turns up. But I would expect that a company like Ocean Infinity, which is a US-based yeah. company, incredibly successful yes. company, they say MH370 is unfinished business and they want to find it. Good, because I always felt that the Malaysian government was not being 100% honest about MH370. Do you have an opinion on that at all that you would like to share? Yes, I do. I don't think they're honest at all. And in fact, uh, that particular government, as we already know, wasn't honest about anything. Yeah. And it's very, very sad that Malaysia has been stained by the corruption of the previous government. Yes. No, I don't think they were transparent at all. I think they handled it hopelessly. Malaysian Airlines used to be a really, really good airline. It was. But unfortunately, this and the MH17, yeah. the shoot down, has just devastated the airline and they're a shadow of their former self, which is really sad because they were once a crackerjack operation. And of course, COVID would not have helped either, would it? No, it's devastated them and as it has many airlines, but it's certainly knocked them for six. Absolutely. I asked you if we could talk about MH370, but the world is starting to open up again. When do yeah. you think that for Australians at least, international travel will become something of a reality again? If we're talking about January 2020, when you could book a flight anywhere yeah. in the world and just go there, I really believe we're looking at 2024 yeah. before we get to that stage. Yes. Clearly, in between time, we're going to have bubbles. Yes. We're going to have green lanes like to Singapore. We're going to have a bubble to New Zealand. Yep. We could have a bubble to the South Pacific. So there's all sorts of opportunities to connect countries that have a similar focus on COVID, yes. similar vaccination rate. But, but the real problem for us, the huge problem for us, is Africa. Yes. And there are other places as well. Other well South America is another choice place, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well the, well, the vaccination rates are really, really low. Yeah. And this virus is mutating all the time. Mm. And all of a sudden, a new strain comes out like we've got right now. What's really disturbed me enormously in the last couple of weeks is the news, for instance, that two KLM flights flew from South Africa to Amsterdam. Mm. On those two flights, there were a total of 67 people the news, who yeah. had COVID. Yes. They're supposed to be double vaccinated before they can fly, number one. Number two, they're supposed to have a COVID test before they fly and be proved to be to be negative. Yep. So how come we've got 67 people on board who all test positive to COVID? Yes. And one of the big problems we've got is corruption and people buying test results. Now, we've already had a couple of cases in Perth where people were tried to bribe people to give them, and one we yeah. had allegedly a nurse yes. who was not jabbing people, allegedly which is still before the courts. We know we've had vaccination fraud in India, yes. in the Netherlands, in France, in the United States and in England. This is a very unsettling thing as far as you want to go travelling somewhere. You're thinking, well, yes, I do, but am I going to get exposed to these sorts of issues and problems on right. my journey? Yeah. Look, I, I think it's going to be slowly, slowly for a while until... We get on top of these sorts of issues and hopefully things free up, you know, middle of next year yep. towards the end of next year, but free and easy travel, 2024. I tend to agree with you, Jeffrey. Jeffrey Thomas, mm. 
Editor-in-Chief of AirlineRatings.com and I can recommend that anybody that is interested in aviation go to AirlineRatings.com. It is a simply brilliant aviation website. Thank you for chatting to us on Tell Me Where to Go. Pleasure, Steve. Anytime. Qatar is a small country on the Arabian Peninsula. It has a population of 2.6 million, but of those, only 313,000 are actually Qatari citizens. The other 2.3 million people are expatriates, and the reason why there are so many expats here is because it is one of the world's richest nations because it has some of the world's greatest quantities of natural gas there. In fact, it has the world's third largest natural gas reserves and oil reserves. Now, it's a fascinating country because most of it is desert, but it's located on a peninsula which juts out 160 kilometres into the Persian Gulf. And that means it has ideal conditions for kite surfing. Most people would not confuse Qatar as a mecca for kite surfing, but I can assure you it is. And in this interview, I speak to Sarah Lord. She's British. She is a kite surfing instructor who found her nirvana in Qatar. So just listen up. There are some other surprises about the waters around Qatar, and I think you will be amazed by its diversity. Meanwhile... Let's go kite serving in Qatar with Sarah Lord. I'm about to speak to Sarah Lord. Now, Sarah Lord is an expert kite surfer. Kite surfing is one of the most beautiful sports to watch. It's absolutely sensational. Sarah lives in a place that I would never in a million years, have associated with kite surfing and windsurfing, and that is the Gulf state of Qatar. Sarah, hello. Steve, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to tell you all about the wonderful water sports opportunities we've got here, specifically kite surfing, the windy state of Qatar. Did your involvement in kite surfing, I'm assuming it didn't start in Qatar, did it start somewhere else? It actually did start in Qatar way back in 2007. I was a, a school teacher actually by trade and yeah. the, the schools here finish at 1.30 in the afternoon and I was looking for something to keep me busy. Qatar's a relatively small Four beaches are easily an hour's drive maximum away. Yeah, I took up the sport, took a few lessons and then I got addicted, heavily addicted. Enjoyed it so much that I, I quit my career and went into being a kite surfing instructor. I would imagine Imagine that kite surfing gives you the same sort of freedom that you feel when you're surfing. Just you and the wind and the ocean, and there's nothing in between. Oh, it's precisely to that. You're at one with that. Mother Nature. It's uh, very much an individual sport, so you feel like it's just you, the ocean, yes. and the wind. And it's quite ironic because it's a relatively adrenaline fueled sport, much like surfing. But it's also my favourite form of relaxing. So yes. That you've got the combination of two extremes there in one sport. Do you have the surf that allows you to get a bit of lift 
off the waves and do a little bit of flying as well? Yes, we do indeed. Right at the top of the north coast of uh, our city called Arrowways, you get some decent swell out there when we've had a few 20 to 30 knot days. Yep. which can be quite often. But what we mainly have in Kata, which we're quite lucky to have, is a lot of beach area that has sheltered lagoons. And a oh. lot of kite surfers enjoy the flat water experience. It's great for beginners, but it's also what the more advanced kite surfers are looking at to enjoy some freestyle playtime. Would you get uh, greater speeds on a flat surface? Yep, great, much greater speeds. And also it's easier to pop for those who want to jump high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you don't need the waves to jump high? You can just do that? No, well, kite surfers like to something called holding your edge, edge and release, and you can pop super high to get some impressive height. It must be fantastic to do that. It must be the closest that humans can come to fly. Exactly, yeah, and you can get a decent amount of hang time. We're really lucky here as well because the landscape's pretty flat and in the north coast is where the most popular beaches are for kite surfing. The wind comes directly off the ocean, so it's extremely stable quite strong. I'd say our average wind speeds are around 20 to 25 knots. Uh, And like I said, you've got these sheltered lagoons, so you have that confidence to boost and try new stuff, you know, go as extreme as you like because you're safe. In the Gulf, we're really blessed because if you look at the geography of Qatar, it's a a peninsula that sticks out into the ocean, so nothing blocks the wind coming to us. So we have the strongest winds in the Gulf, and they run from November to July, and they're thermal winds. So it's a pretty long, windy season that we have. I believe that you have been working with the Qatar Olympic Committee as well to start a national kite surfing team and it was extremely successful yeah we started that way back in 2011 i'd been traveling beforehand i was uh, working as a kite surfing instructor in mauritius south asia africa and i always thought i need to get back to Qatar because the conditions are so much better there <laughs> so i contacted the olympic committee and they were like everybody else what we have kite surfing conditions in Qatar." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, I mean, one of the best places, if not the best conditions in the world. So let's put something together. And that, so it was for the Kateri national team. I had a team of 36, nine females wow. and the rest males. And we focused on formula kites, so it was racing. With kite surfing, it seems to me that it doesn't matter what gender you are, all bets are off, everything is equal. Is that the same? Do men and women race together in kite surfing or do you have distinct events for men and women? Well, now it's going into the Olympics and they're, uh, they've proposed a, a relay race, so it'll be man and woman team. You're right. right. Men and women can compete equally. The majority of people who do kite surf are men and I think women have this misconception that you need to be strong to be able to kite surf and it's completely the opposite. I, I actually prefer teaching women. I find they learn much faster because you need to be gentle and it's a bit more technical. Tell me a bit about Qatar, because obviously the north is your preferred place to kite surf. But the coastline there, I I believe, is extraordinary. I know that you get whale sharks there. We have one of the largest shiver of whale sharks on the planet. We've got a shiver of 50 that floats around up north. And also you have, I think it's the second largest number of dugons off Qatar. You're correct. Also on the north coast. 
that means a lot to me because I know that dugongs, they feed almost exclusively on seagrass and the seagrass wouldn't be able to flourish if there was any pollution in those waters. So that signifies to me that the waters there must be very clean. They are, they're crystal clear, especially on the north coast because there's nothing for miles and miles but ocean. There's no other country or any habitation nearby, if you like. So yeah, there's a gathering of 840 dugongs on the northwest coast of Dukan in Qatar. And it's the second largest population after Australia. I believe you've got the largest gathering of dugongs there in Australia. Yeah, we have several places. Shark Bay in Western Australia is renowned for. They also occur up in the Torres Strait, etc. They're very reclusive animals, for a starter, but fascinating to watch. They're very unique-looking animals, yeah. Yeah. If people want to go and kite surf Qatar, and I have never, ever used that phrase before, Sarah... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it may be the first time ever used, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you have got the ideal conditions. So let's hope that when people listen to this podcast, and also I'm going to ask for some photos of kite serving just to prove that it exists, Sarah. When they see that, they'll be wanting to get out to Qatar and and just spend those wonderful days because the climate there is pretty fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, especially during our windy season, which is November all the way through to July. Our coldest month is January, but you're you're talking about 18 degrees centigrade cold, so nothing too chilly. And you have all the facilities there to attract kite surfers? Right now, I would encourage people to take advantage of the incredible stopover deals that are offered with Discover Cata. Because yep. uh, it's a major hub, Catherine, and so many people travel yep. through and they just transit right. straight through without stopping. But if you're a kite surfer, Catter Airways flight, you get a very generous 32 kg, bring your stuff with you, get a hotel, jump in a car, and like I said, <laughs> you can't get lost in Catter. <laughs> it's like... Oh. It's 200 kilometers from the most southern point to the most northern point, so you can get a lot done in a couple of days and head to the coast, you know, and uh, enjoy the winds and enjoy the conditions. Well, Sarah Lord, you've made it sound fantastic. I would be wanting to see those whale shark and the dugongs. And also, I love snorkeling, and I believe there's some pretty fantastic snorkeling and diving in Qatar as well. There is indeed off the coast. There's some amazing marine life to be seen. Yeah, I definitely recommend it to everybody. And like you said, people are just unaware of this, and I, I just can't wait to share it with the rest of the world. Sarah Lord, who is a kite surfer in Qatar, been delightful speaking to you, particularly because I really like finding out little-known things about places, and you have certainly done that. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve. The start of the Ferguson Valley is about a 15-minute drive east of Bunbury, or just off the southwest highway near Dardanup. The valley is set amongst a majestic backdrop of lush, green, rolling hills, with more than a dozen boutique wineries, two craft breweries and passionate chefs producing world-class food. There are some delightful drives through the valley. Located within the Ferguson Valley is the Wellington Dam, Crooked Brook Forest, Honeymoon Pool 
and Wellington Forest. Located just two hours from Perth, it is the perfect place in which to spend a weekend or midweek break. My all-time favourite place in the Ferguson Valley is Gnomesville. It is one of the best free attractions anywhere and has so much charm. It is a delight to walk around to admire both the whimsy and seriousness behind the placement of the gnomes. There seems to be no rules in Gnomesville. Not that gnomes would obey them if the rules did exist. This documentary is a charming look at Gnomesville. I do hope that you enjoy it. At a quiet roundabout on a road in the Ferguson Valley of Western Australia, you can't fail but notice that a large population has suddenly appeared. Yet, there are no gazetted towns on the map. Thousands of eyes stare back at you as you hop out of the car. It's not a spooky place at all. In fact, this place seems to be filled with joy. Welcome to Gnomesville. In the middle of what seems to be nowhere, thousands of gnomes from all over the world have gathered to have a good time. There is no discernible pattern to Gnomesville. There is no admission to pay, no sense of planning. Gnomesville looks like it has just become. In fact, Gnomesville began many years ago as a protest against a new alignment for the existing road. A new T-intersection was mooted to be built, and the local residents believed this to be a dangerous plan given its location at the bottom of a hill. So, the local humans protested, and the town burghers ensured that a roundabout was built instead. A decision that did seem to be wiser and certainly safer than the original. The first gnome appeared as if by magic in the middle of the roundabout just after its completion. Some local official moved the gnome from the roundabout to the side of the road where many more gnomes magically began to appear. After all, gnomes get lonely. They need good company. Gradually, their little community grew. When I was visiting Gnomes Mill, I met a charming elderly lady who was on an outing with her carer. I estimated her age to be in the late 70s, but she was still sprightly and chatty. She told me that she had left a gnome there just after her son died at age 11. So that must have been an awfully long time ago. She said that she liked to go back and visit him whenever the opportunity arose. To remember your son by visiting a gnome rather than a grave seemed to me to be a very positive thing. So now I knew that Gnomesville has true meaning for many. 
It is much more than a collection of small statuary. It is where the spirit of loved ones live on. Over the years, thousands of gnomes have been placed there in whatever spot can be found. Much of the work went into creating the paths and bridges which ford the stream and curbing which keeps the place neat was carried out by a local farmer, Kevin Campbell. In his own time and at his own pace, often with materials that had been donated by others. A memorial to his work now stands in a spot near where the first gnome appeared. About 30 of the gnomes were set there by Kevin's wife, Vicky. There are many different attitudes represented in Gnomesville. Some are sad, being dedicated to deceased loved ones. Others represent the members of families or groups, such as service clubs, who are very much alive, but who wanted to leave their mark. Many have a humorous aspect and were left by people just hoping to give others a laugh. In that sense, the gnomes represent a typical human community and they have appeared through the generosity of people who have willingly contributed to this fascinating scene. Essentially, Gnomesville is about people wanting to do something for others to enjoy and it is a place which astounds with delightful surprises. Each visitor is invited to leave a gnome or gnomes the only proviso is that you write the gnome's name on its hat, and we know that all gnomes wear hats. Plus, the date of arrival somewhere on the gnome, so that the gnomophiles can keep a record of each individual. Some people adorn their gnomes with terrible puns. There's gnome, a place like gnome, being the most popular. Poor Gnomesville has never been officially gazetted as a town, although it probably should be. It is definitely located on the wrong side of the tracks, even more so since a new highway was opened up several kilometres to the west of the former major route, the Southwest Highway. The popularity of the new highway has reduced passing traffic by a considerable amount. Even so, Cup, the small town that is the gateway to the Ferguson Valley, is very easy to miss. As you travel along the Southwest Highway, Buracup is located on the other side of a main train line and is shrouded by trees. Unless you absolutely positively know that you want to visit Buracup and journey on further to the Ferguson Valley, there's not a lot of signage to entice you in. So, just getting to Gnomesville can be a challenge, which is a real pity. When you visit Gnomesville, you do feel that sense of belonging because each gnome means something to someone. It is a very uplifting place. In Gnomesville, you can sit and reflect or laugh at the more absurd collections. As already acknowledged, Gnomesville is located on a back road so it doesn't see a lot of traffic. It isn't really advertised far and wide so most travellers don't know about it. This may be a good thing because gnomes probably don't enjoy being continuously disturbed by humans wandering over their domain. Unless you know better, Gnomesville is a sort of place you just stumble upon and 
that is part of the delight, for it is a very pleasant discovery. In fact, to borrow from those previously acknowledged terrible puns, you could say that it's a bit of a phenomenon. There we are, Gnomesville in the Ferguson Valley. Do add it to your bucket list. Thank you for listening to Tell Me Where to Go here on DRN1. If you do have a love for travel, please visit our website www.tellmewheretogo.com. It is the numeral 2, not the word T-O. You'll be able to visit many more places there, listen to lots of podcasts and watch a number of videos and dream about travelling again. That's it for this edition of Tell Me Where to Go. Goodbye until next time. (laughs) 